Everybody still good? Good. It seemed less so, but that's fine. We'll see if we can pick that back up. So, uh, I don't know if you heard, but Britain's oldest woman turned 114. And so they were asking her, you know, they do the token interview where everybody kind of asks, hey, you know, what makes you allowed or what gives you the longevity to get to that age? That's the proper way to say that. Uh, and she attributed it to taking a walk at midnight every night. And so the, the interviewer is like, what? Like, that's crazy. Like, it, it, you, at midnight, you're 114. And so they're like, aren't you concerned that there's been an increase in muggings over the years? And she said, no, I'm not concerned, and I'm going to continue mugging people as long as my health holds up. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so we are continuing the Amazing Acts series. And this series is such an exciting thing for me, and I've loved talking about it because it's about the new church, and it's about the disciples, and it's about everything that Jesus said would happen starting to happen, saying you're going to be the church, you're going to go out, and then everyone going out to do it. And we see such amazing things. Uh, we see Peter, who had been so up and down, all of a sudden now have this boldness and confidence in the faith. We see Saul uh, converted into Paul. We see everything start to take place that Jesus said, this is what the church is going to be. You are going to be my church. You are going to be my disciples. And then they went and did it. And now we get to be that church. Uh, Acts continues through us, through everything that God does through us. And so I want to go to uh, chapter 17, 22 through 34. And you'll see a reason we had some different readings today in a little bit. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I noticed that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. So Paul was invited to a thing called the Areopagus, which is basically a gathering place for the smartest of the smart, the people who thought they were elite, the philosophers, the, the people who thought they knew everything and were figuring out all of life's questions. And they heard him talking about God, and they heard him talking about Jesus and about his conversion, and they're like, that's kind of a novel idea. We've not had somebody like that before, and so they called him to go and speak. And so Paul, being someone who as soon as he was converted, immediately went and just could not hold in Jesus. He's like, I'll take it. I'll go do it. And so just a little bit about this intellectual center. Most of the philosophers there, as you well know, were Epicurean and Stoic, right? Like, we all knew that. You know I was going to say that. Good. Three laughs is all I need to keep going. Um, Epicurean... They, they believed, I'm going to tell you a little bit about each of them and why this is important. The Epicurean philosophers, they believed that pleasure was the chief purpose in life. They believed that everything in life was about being happy, uh, about that short-term happiness, about pleasure, about anything that could make their life better in the moment. Uh, and that's not a philosophy that has gone away for a lot of people. Uh, they didn't deny gods, but they thought that gods had nothing to do with man. So it's like, they're just there. We actually are above them because it's all about us. And that's how they felt. 
And then the Stoic philosophers, they believed a life of proud dignity was above all else. Now that's like, okay, that kind of can vibe with that one. But they also believed that everything was God and God was everything, which meant that they believed you shouldn't resist anything. That anything that happens, that's God. Good, bad, ugly, whatever it is. Like you shouldn't resist because everything is God. And you can kind of see how that's a slightly distorted version of what we actually believe, but you can see that there's something there. And so Paul knew all of that and he saw that. And now a lot of them, as he began talking, started mocking him because he wasn't using the, the philosophical niceties, which means he wasn't talking like he was supposed to. And so they're like, oh, this guy. Like they, they almost treated him like a circus act because they called him up to talk because he was kind of novel and he was interesting. And, and then he starts saying things. And they're like, ah, whatever, let's listen anyway. And so he opens by calling them religious. It was not a compliment. But he just calls them religious because they thought of themselves as the most religious people in the world because they figured out everything and they knew everything. And so he calls them that. And again, it's not necessarily an insult, but it's also not necessarily a compliment. And usually he would begin his sermons with exposition of scripture. Uh, he would talk about something from, from the Old Testament or in his day, the Testament. And he would talk about that and he would talk about it and he would expose it and he would just go from there into the glorious resurrection of Jesus. But in this meeting, he talked about God. He changed his message slightly. He didn't change the truth. He didn't change the meaning. He didn't change what was important, but he knew he was, who he was speaking to. And he knew they had these wrong ideas about God and so he wanted to establish a bridge. He wanted to say, hey, let's talk about this unknown God. I'm going to use that to tell you who God really is and how powerful God really is. And, and just a little bit about the unknown God. This is such a cool concept. And if you've ever been to Greece and seen this, there really are statues to an unknown God. And so Paul knows, hey, there's only one God. There's only one God and he is known and I'm going to tell you about him. But for the unknown, uh, basically... He was meant to cover any God who may have been accidentally rejected. Because, you know, they had this big pantheon of gods, uh, Zeus and, and Hera. And I'm not going to go through all of them, but everybody here has seen the Disney Hercules, I'm sure. So you know some of them, right? Good. Wow, okay. Good. I like having my sister here. Um, at least I know somebody's listening. But uh, so follow, there was this big plague in that area. And so this guy, Epimenides, Epimenides, Apologies to him if I missaid his name, but to appease everyone after the plague, he let loose a flock of sheep, as we do. Um, and so he let loose a flock of sheep, and any time the sheep would lay down, he would sacrifice it to the nearest God, the statue, the shrine, the temple, whatever was nearest. And any time that there was no shrine or temple, he would do it to the quote-unquote unknown God. And so that's how all of this started because they believed that the sheep would go and essentially call to be sacrificed in front of the temple that they were supposed to be. And so now they had all of these unknown gods. And so like I said, Paul usually began in a different way, but he knew his crowd. And again, he did not change the truth. He did not change the scripture, but he knew that to reach people, he had to understand them. He had to talk to them from a place they understood, just like Jesus did with the parables, just like Jesus did with everything. And it's so cool to see Paul doing this. And he recognized that they needed to change their ideas about God. 
And so he spoke of his power, of, of his creation, of his glory. He spoke of everything about God, how God is beyond anything they understand. He's beyond anything that they can imagine in all of the gods of their pantheon. He is real and he is total and he is omnipotent. And Paul is talking about all of this to illustrate a little bit about God. And that's part of why I, I, we had the Genesis and Revelation, because God is the beginning. God is the end. God is creation. God is, is bringing us to a place of complete joy one day, of no tears, of no sorrow, because that's who God is, because he is loving and he is hopeful and he is here for us. And Paul is telling these people this, and not all of them were listening, but he's telling them anyway. You've probably heard at some point, hey, the earth is the exact right distance from the sun in order for life. And that makes sense. And that shows you a little bit about God. And it's so awesome. Or you've probably heard something about the way the human body works or the brain and how it could, if it worked any slightly different way, then, then it couldn't happen. And it shows us God. Well, I was recently reading a book uh, about string theory and quantum physics, as you do, and because uh, I'm a big nerd. And... Uh, this quote stood out to me. Now, it wasn't a Christian book, but it wasn't a non-Christian book, if that makes sense, but it was about science. And this quote leapt out to me over everything. And so I want to read it. Had, say, the electron been moderately heavier or lighter, or had the electric repulsion between electrons been stronger or weaker, the nuclear processes that power stars like our sun would have been disrupted. Without stars, the universe would be a very different place. Most pointedly, without the sun's heat and light, the complex chain of events that led to life on Earth would have failed to happen. And that's from Dr. Brian Greene. Now, when he writes this, he's speaking from a scientific perspective. But when I read this, I don't see how you cannot see the hand of God there. Think about that. I know it's been a while for some of us to be in science class. But we know the basic atom is electrons, protons, neutrons, all these little tiny things that we can't see. Unlike some of the tiny things we can see that are kind of right around me right now. But these little tiny things that you can't see, the electrons. And if they had been like a milla, whatever version you want to say, like this, any amount of weight, higher or lower, any amount. And they're not even weightable, so to speak, now any amount, then stars don't work. And if stars don't work, the sun doesn't work. And if sun doesn't work, there's no life. That's God. That's what Paul is telling them. He's like, this God, he is so perfect. And he knows everything beyond what we could know. And he's created everything down to the atom to be perfect, to, to establish his life, to establish his world. And it's so cool to me to read that. It's so powerful. To, to read that, and I want to go on to verse 27. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God, this is Paul talking, and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are offspring, and since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day of judging, for judging the world, with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. So Paul again is speaking to his crowd. 
Now, again, in the synagogue, he's quoting from, from Scripture, and he's quoting from things they understand, and he's quoting because Paul knew so much. And it's so amazing, Paul's life. And we're going to talk about that a little bit, but he's quoting now from Greek poets. That's not something we often quote from. But he's quoting from Greek poets, Epimenides again, and Eratus. Not because they're prophets, not because they're even biblical, but because what they said had a biblical truth. So he's building a bridge to his crowd. He's building a bridge to his congregation. It would be like if right now I used a quote from Joey Votto. And all of a sudden everybody here is like, oh, I'm awake now. Right? Like you'd be with me then. Or Joe Burrow, man. I don't know what he says, but probably something. And so Paul is quoting... And he continues to speak of God. And then he goes into our relationship with him. He talks about the eventual judgment of the world. And then he gets to Jesus. Now, if you've read through all of Paul, and if you haven't read through everything Paul wrote, uh, I challenge you to do this by next service. So you'll have a little time between, and then you can come back here and we'll talk about it. I'll give a little quiz, and the, new, the people that come in for 11 o'clock, they'll be so impressed. And you guys will like that, right? Good. One person will like it, and that's fine. Uh, but he's talking about this, and in Paul's sermons, in his writings, everything was about the resurrection. Everything was about the resurrection. Because for him, it made everything else make sense. It was the assurance that there was something more. It, it was the possibility of grace, the, the hope of life. Now look at Paul for a second. Look at how far he's come. He was involved in the murder of Stephen and probably several other believers. Uh, he, he was so angry and dead set on his view as being right that he would not change for anyone. And then Jesus reached out to him. And it changed him and it made him more. And now he's willing to, to speak a little differently. Again, not altering the truth but speak a little differently to this new crowd so that someone will hear the glory of the resurrection. He was once so tied to his own thoughts, but now he's so willing to follow the Spirit. He's such a wonderful example. More importantly, now, he didn't see every situation and every person as the same. Before Jesus, he was just a hammer. And if you're a hammer, everything is a nail. And so he would go through life and everything was, you're against me, so you're wrong. You're against me, so I'm, you're wrong. Basically, American politics. So you're against me, so you're wrong. But now Jesus had fine-tuned him into one of those Swiss army knives, basically. One of those things that I have and then I'll lose within a couple weeks and kind of wish that I had it, even though I never have use for a Swiss army knife because I'm not very handy. Good, okay. That was a, a, an acceptance of what I said, and I guess that's just as good as a laugh. Um, but he didn't see everyone as the same. He saw them as Jesus saw them. And I have a quote from C.S. Lewis, which I know is a shepherd. We'll get that in a second. The freedom of God consists in the fact that no cause other than himself produces uh, produces his acts and no external obstacle impedes them that his own goodness is the root from which they all grow and his own omnipotence the air in which they all flower. Let me read that again. The freedom of God, which is what we have, 
consists in the fact that no cause other than himself produces his acts and no external obstacle impedes them, which means nothing can stop God. We can feel persecuted and that can happen and people can hate us and people cannot listen, but nothing can stop God as Paul showed every day. That his own goodness, God's own goodness is the root from which they all grow. Every act grows. And his own omnipotence, the air in which they all flower. That means everything comes from God. The, the, the Stoics were so close. They believed that God was everything. And that is true, but he's so much more than that. He loves us more than anyone could ever love us. He, he, he hopes for us more than anyone could ever hope for us. This is why. This is the cause. This is the reason. This is why we're here. This is why we go to church. Because... God is good because God has a purpose for us, because he has a reason for us, because he is glorious and omnipotent and omniscient and everything. And yet, even though he knows everything and even though he's everywhere, he still loves us. That's insane. He still loves us. Nothing political, nothing in sports, nothing work related can match up to God to his message, to his goodness. No cause other than God. His goodness is at the root of all. He is everything, and yet he works with us. He works through us. He gives us more than we deserve. Listen, Paul had no business being there. Paul was an angry jerk who murdered people. That's legit. That's true. Paul murdered people, and he was angry, and he was mean, and he was cruel, and yet, he was forgiven. Because God saw something in him, and had a purpose, and forgave him. God sees more than we see. He knows more than we know. He loves more than we love. He helps more than we help. He is always there, always Whatever has happened in our lives, whatever is going on, whatever is going through your mind and your heart right now, God knows it. The good, the bad, the ugly. And yet, He still loves us completely. And He still has a purpose for us. If He could forgive Paul and allow Paul to write half the New Testament and reach out to so many other people, including in this situation the Greeks, what can he do now? The answer is everything. He can work through everyone. He can work through uh, my sister's singing. He can work through me talking for too long, as some of you said. But still, he can work through Beatrice and her innocence. And I know that it's different to have a little girl in here and a little kid, and I know that she moves around. But Jesus once said, be like children. I'm talking about that on Tuesday nights. Be like the children. What do children do? What does God do through children? They are innocently hopeful. And they will tell you what they think. And they don't care what other people think because they are just them. And that is what God has for us. And that's where Paul was now. He didn't care that all of these people were making fun of him. I'm sure that it hurt. But he knew, I've got the message and I'm going to tell it. And that is our life. That is who we can be. Because if he can work through me, he can absolutely work through you. Because I'm not special. 
But God is. And His goodness is everywhere. He is everywhere. Last part of the scripture. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So, a lot of them, the majority of them, mocked the idea of the resurrection. They were kind of with him through everything. They thought he was interesting. But as soon as he said, and God brought Jesus back from the dead, they're like, we're out. And they started laughing. And they started making fun of him. They loved the idea of the immortality of the soul. But they saw the body and anything material as evil. So they didn't believe in any kind of resurrection. Now, Paul, now as Paul, was a gifted writer. He was incredibly smart. He knew all of the laws and all of the rules and everything that he had to do and all of the scripture. He knew all of this stuff. And he was a very good speaker, apparently. And he could plan and he could lead and he knew the ins and outs of everything and he started churches and he went on mission trips and he did so much. And yet they stopped him and they laughed at him. They stopped him, this guy who we see as one of the biblical heroes, who follows Jesus in such an amazing way, and they laughed at him. And yet, some listened. Maybe two, the two they mentioned. Maybe 40, maybe 100. What matters is that some listened. Paul stopped his sermon and went to talk one-on-one and he knew that he wished, he, oh, I guarantee he held on, I wish everybody had heard me. But he knew that even if it were just those two, God moved. And they heard him and they listened and they changed and then he went on to Corinth, always feeling that he could do more, always following Jesus. But here's the thing he knew and what we have to know. You're never going to get everybody. You're not. And it stinks and it hurts. I wish so badly because we know the truth and we know the way and we know the life and we know everything that is going to happen and we heard from Revelation the the, the glory that is coming. So we know the importance. But not everybody's going to listen. They're not. And sometimes we feel like, well, we got to turn into a hammer and we got to keep pounding them. But we look to Jesus and we see What did he do with the woman at the well? He told her the truth, but when she didn't listen, he changed the subject. And what happened? She still, in the long run, came back to him. And I've got news for you about the disciples. Not all of them seemed to listen either. And yet it didn't change the effectiveness of his message. Because we plant seeds and we live like him and we show like him. And for Paul, he could have focused so much on the hundreds that didn't listen, the ones that were laughing at him. But in that atmosphere, for two or however many to listen, that is so powerful and so amazing and he loved it. And so I have a final quote. This is from Billy Graham, somebody you probably also know. We are the Bibles the world is reading. We are the creeds the world is needing. We are the sermons the world is heeding. I've said this a lot before and I'll probably say it a lot again. 
You may be, we may be, the only example of Jesus somebody sees. How we react in a situation, how we react to our own failures, how we react to struggles, how we treat other people, we may be the only example of Jesus someone sees because they're not going to come into church unless they feel like coming into church. But they'll see us in the world. We are His examples. We are His witnesses. This does not mean we replace those things, the Bibles, the creeds, the sermons. But it means we take them out to those who don't see them, who don't hear them, who don't know them yet. And we plant the seeds. We plant the hope. We are how people see the church. We are how people see Jesus. We are not perfect. But even in that lack of perfection is an example. It's hope. I have talked before about my mental health and I talk about it frequently because it's a big part of me. I teach a class on Tuesdays about Always Keep Fighting and it's about different mental health topics and I go through it and, and I, I, I really focus on talking about it. I'm not perfect. But because of my struggles, I am attuned to those same struggles in others in a way that maybe I wouldn't be if I didn't have them. You see, God has a place for me. And maybe there's something you struggle with and you're like, how could God possibly love me? But He does. And somebody else that struggles with that is longing to hear about your battle. To see hope in you. I had someone from the class at one point say, say essentially, and I don't like this, but they said it. You are an example of what I want to be. Because I keep going. I don't like thinking good things about myself. But we are here to be an example for others. We aren't here to complain, to condemn, to judge, to hate, to be angry, to feel like we're better than other people because we're here. Because we're not. We are here to show Jesus to be the sermon, to be the example. We are the Bibles. We are the creeds. We are the sermons. Because we are like Him. That is who we are. That's what Paul fought for. That's what all of the disciples died for. And that's what we live for. That's all I got.